If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Brickenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. I want to revisit uh, a real flashpoint uh, from four years ago in the free speech debate and look back on what happened then and, and look at maybe what's changed since then. I feel like there's been some stagnation. I don't know that we've really resolved these issues. They, they seem to keep coming up. Uh, but this was an incident at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. And so I suppose in a way it was one of the uh, Jordan Peterson controversies that were happening at the time, even though he wasn't directly involved in this in any way. But it very much uh, thrust our next guest into the national spotlight and almost overnight went from obscurity to notoriety for the quote-unquote crime of uh, showing a clip of a Jordan Peterson uh, debate in in an in-class setting. Now, the ensuing fallout... Uh, certainly ended up reflecting rather poorly uh, on the university, as it turned out. Um, but the person at the center of all of it has written a book about the experience and uh, about some of the broader issues uh, that that incident raised and that uh, university has been grappling with, certainly before that and definitely since then. The book is called Diversity and Exclusion. Confronting the Campus Free Speech Crisis. Joining us on the line is the author of the book, the center of this uh, story in many ways, Lindsay Shepard. Joins us on the line here this afternoon. Lindsay, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, great to be here. Well, I appreciate you joining us here. Um, let's talk first of all, and I mean, I think people remember this this story, and um, you know, we could go through as, as much detail as you want here, but what, what do people need to know uh, about what happened four years ago? Yeah, so in 2017, I was a teaching assistant at Wilfrid Laurier University um, for Communication Studies 101, a first-year class on uh, communication. And um, for that particular week in class in November 2017, um, our theme was grammar. And so in addition to just doing some boring grammar stuff, I brought in a clip from TVO's The Agenda with Steve Pakin, which is a publicly funded television program. And um, the clip I played was of a panel discussion involving, you know, as you mentioned, Dr. Jordan Peterson, um, as well as some other participants. And they were talking about compelled speech and gender pronouns. And um, at the time, whether Bill C-16, which is a bill that put uh, gender expression in the Human Rights Code, whether that would um, compel people to use pronouns um, other than he and she to refer to people. Uh, So I played it for my class. Uh, Everything went well. But then a week later, I got an email from my supervising professor calling me into a meeting. And uh, in that meeting, I was told that I targeted trans folks by playing that clip. I had created a toxic environment. Um, It was like I played a speech by Hitler 
um, and I violated the university's sexual violence policy. Uh, but yeah, I mean, was, I I, yes. I I secretly recorded the meeting, of course, and exactly, I went to the media, yes. uh, which was the game changer. I think I even went on your show um, a few years ago yep. to talk about it, yep. and um, so that was that's what kind of changed everything. And now I document the entire thing from start to finish in uh, my book, Diversity and Exclusion. Right. So as it turns out, and there was an internal investigation here that really vindicated you uh, because there there were no complaints, even though they, you were, were told in this uh, angry dressing down that there had been uh, complaints and that the university officials who had dealt with the matter uh, were just completely off base in, in how they approached it. So, um, I, I mean, in that sense, I suppose it was... Uh, a positive ending, but obviously it was uh, much more of a controversy than it ever needed to be. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of people followed the story in 2017 when it was in the news. Um, So, you know, it kind of went, okay, there's a secret recording, Uh, then the university went into damage control mode, and then the university apologizes, and that's kind of that. But there was actually so much more happening behind the scenes and um, stuff that isn't necessarily newsworthy, like like myself as a graduate student at the university, just being slowly alienated by my peers and professors. Um, and so that's the kind of stuff I write about uh, in my book. It's a behind-the-scenes look at, at going through a media controversy. It's interesting. And, and, you know, when you think back at the time, and I mean, it does seem odd to me. Here we have Jordan Peterson, who I'm sure is controversial, I guess, if you want to call him that. I mean, he's a tenured professor at the University of Toronto, appearing on, as you say, Ontario Public Television in a panel discussion. And and yet this was somehow off limits in a classroom. But when when you were planning that day, and, and I'm sure you probably knew at the time that, okay, maybe there's some degree of kind of political correctness that exists on this campus. Certain topics are, are considered provocative. But did you really expect that that anything like this was was going to come of that? Oh, no, not at all. And especially because, you know, when I was in that role of teaching assistant and brought in the clip, um, I was totally neutral. I didn't say, oh, look at this awesome guy, Jordan Peterson, nor did I say, oh, look at this terrible figure. I just said, let's let's see um, if these arguments have any merit and, you know, what the grammatical implications of different pronouns are. Uh, I was told in the disciplinary meeting by the professors and the diversity bureaucrat that my neutrality on the issue was the problem. And um, if I would have condemned Peterson as being, you know, a transphobe bigot, et cetera, uh, it probably would have been fine and I wouldn't have been in trouble at all. Right, which, I mean, certainly you weren't willing to do. And why why would you, right? Why, Why is it on you? Uh, to to have to frame it a certain way when the whole idea of university is, you know, it's being exposed to ideas, learning to think for yourself. And I think this cuts to, to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? It does, yeah, because, I mean, in the book, I talk about how the university was an institution that I really revered and I thought was amazing. Uh, and I slowly become disenchanted and I realized that these principles like you know, open inquiry and free expression, open discussion, all these things that I really valued didn't necessarily exist in university arts departments anymore. 
So as I noted, I mean, and, and very quickly you went from from obscurity to notoriety, and I'm, I'm curious what you made of of all the coverage and how you were being discussed, because I, I think there was a perception that, well, because you didn't denounce Jordan Peterson, you, you must be a fan. Because you support free speech on campus, you must be right wing. I mean, people were trying to peg you in, in a lot of different ways or put you into to certain boxes, weren't they? Yeah, and it was it was definitely interesting to go from someone who had no social media, no public presence at all, to suddenly people having an opinion on you and people writing articles about you, supportive and critical. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, what was what else did you mention there? Well, just in terms of you know everyone assuming things about you that that you were this, you were that. You're you're a Jordan Peterson supporter. You're a conservative. You're a right winger. You're the alt right. You're all of these these different things, and and a lot of assumptions being made about you based on. You know, the fact that you showed this video or the fact that now you're supportive of free speech on campus, things that that otherwise don't really seem right wing or left wing should theoretically be fairly non-controversial. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have considered my myself a fan of Jordan Peterson when I played the clip back in 2017. Uh, but, you know, a couple of years later, here we are, and I would definitely consider myself a fan. So interesting how that works. And um, yeah, as for my political leanings, that was something that really uh, interested everyone at the time of the mainstream media coverage. And um, I, I think it's because I was trying to say I'm a leftist and people were intrigued by that because you don't find as many leftists, you know, self-declared leftists who are um, simultaneously free speech advocates and who really believe in free speech. Right. Uh, it's just become more of a right wing thing. So I think people were quite intrigued when I said that. Uh, but over time, I moved away from labeling myself at all. And I, I described that transformation in, in the book, too. But, you know, if I if I had to label myself something, I would say a centrist. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, as you say, I mean, you have a bit of a different perspective now as to, to Jordan Peterson himself, who certainly has both fans and detractors. But, I mean, beyond that, in, in what sense do you feel that this whole experience changed you or, or changed your, your outlook on life or, or on politics? Um, I think it really woke me up to the issue of free expression and why it matters. Um, before, I was pretty private, um, a pretty private person. And so, you know, any kind of maybe unorthodox opinion or non-mainstream opinion I had, I wouldn't express it ever. Um, and I think that's how people go along thinking, oh, there isn't really a problem with free expression. It's because they've never really rubbed up against censorship or had someone uh, mob them for an opinion or something like that. Um, but because I was thrust into these issues, I learned about them very quickly. Um, and so, uh, it, like, I'm thankful for the experience at Wilfrid Laurier University insofar as I was woken up to an entire discussion in our culture that previously I hadn't been paying attention to. There was another more serious allegation thrown at you, and it goes back to even what was said in the in the dressing down from university officials, that, that somehow you were anti-trans. And, and that has come up over the years. How, how do you respond to that? Yeah, so they were trying to say that uh, by treating Jordan Peterson's opinion on trans pronouns as valid, that is, you know, putting people's identities uh, into question. Right. And it's targeting trans people. Um, I think this is a total mischaracterization of of the discussions that are being had. Um, and 
Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I don't even hear that many people bring up the discussion of alternative pronouns anymore. Uh, you know, I mean, I think at least in the, the few years since 2017, the, the pronouns like G or what have you, they haven't really taken off. I mean, I haven't really met anyone right. who uses those pronouns. No. I think now the, the discussion has shifted to should uh, trans women or biological males be allowed to play in women's sport? Uh, should they be allowed to stay in women's prison? I think that's kind of where the cultural discussion is now. And where I fall on those matters um, would be that, you know, biological women need to have their own spaces. And I don't think that's anti-trans because uh, trans people would ideally have their own spaces as well. Let's talk about the, the writing of the book then. And, you know, there's obviously quite a story to be told here, but what what convinced you that, you know, you, you wanted to really sit down and, and get into the details of this? What what prompted the book? Um, so I wanted to document everything from start to finish. And I think, you know, when it comes to these campus controversies, the, in in terms of books, there's not a lot out there. And so I thought, you know, if someone's going to go through a controversy like I did, um, I, at the time, I was looking for resources and I was looking for reading material and experiences to relate to. And yeah, in terms of books, there wasn't anything really. So I thought my book can kind of fill that gap. Um, but it's also just a pretty interesting story. And I I document everything really thoroughly. So, you know, I, I have a full transcript of the meeting in the book. Um, I, I have excerpts of articles that were circulating at the time, um, open letters and petitions that were circulating on campus. So it's a really um, succinct case study. And I think it'll be interesting for a lot of people. What's your sense of what's changed since 2017? I said earlier, it feels like it's just been kind of stagnation, that all the issues that were there then are, are still present now. But if things, is the balance tipped one way or another, do you think? I think stagnant is a good way to put it, um, or perhaps it's even gotten worse. I think part of the stagnation is because of COVID. Of course, the students actually aren't even on campuses. So uh, how many controversies or issues can you really have when uh, it's just everyone as an atomized individual mm -hmm. home? Uh, but we still have seen some things happening. I mean, in in June 2020, um, there was a dean at Laurentian University, and he he was the dean of graduate studies, and he tweeted on his personal Twitter account, hashtag all lives matter. And he, he said also a comment about how we all evolved from monkeys, so all lives matter, something like that. Right. Um, and this was amid the, the George Floyd death. Um, and so people were, I guess, hypersensitive to... Uh, racial commentary. Um, but anyway, All Lives Matter is seen by some activists as undermining the Black Lives Matter movement because you're not giving them any, um, you're not recognizing their fight or something like that. So the university, Laurentian University, condemned this dean as um, a, putting out an inappropriate and offensive tweet. He was removed from his position as dean and um, perhaps your listeners know that Laurentian University is currently bankrupt and going through um, restructuring. And even though this this professor, David Le Barrere, even though his department survived, he was the only one. And I'm sure we can kind of connect that to the tweet. 
Very interesting. Well, the book is called Diversity and Exclusion, Confronting the Campus Free Speech Crisis. Lindsay, thanks so much. Make some time for us here. All the best to you. Yeah, thanks. All right. That is uh, Lindsay Shepard. Uh, again, the book is called Diversity and Exclusion, uh, available now. And uh, it's uh, her story of what she went through at Wilfrid Laurier University and all of the subsequent fallout. All right, Rob Riggenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. A lot more still to get to here this afternoon, but I do want to get back to a story that we've been talking about this week. And it's no secret, I think, to Canadians that when it comes to China, uh, the government has really been walking on eggshells as of late to avoid any further escalation. And look, in fairness, a big part of the concern is the plight of the two Michaels, the two Canadian citizens arbitrarily detained in China, which is kind of the point, I think, of that sort of hostage diplomacy to exert pressure on Canada, and it would then affect the decisions we're making with regard to foreign policy in China. And this whole situation with the Halifax International Security Forum is a great example of this. Now, we learned earlier in the week uh, that there were plans to award the John McCain Prize for Leadership and Public Service to the president of Taiwan. Now, the event is set for November. Plans are for it to be virtually. Uh, but that was going to be a big part of the event, presenting this award to Taiwan's president. It was first reported by Politico on Monday, a U.S.-based publication, uh, that the Canadian government had issued an ultimatum to the organizers of the event, uh, that if this award was going to be presented, financial support and other support would be pulled from the event. Now, since that was reported, there have been some denials from the government, uh, but some new reporting from the Washington Post shed some further light on the situation. Our next guest has a piece you can read at WashingtonPost.com. The headline, How an Attempted Canadian Concession to China Backfired. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is Josh Rogan. He's a columnist for the Washington Post, covers foreign policy and national security matters. Josh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Great to be with you. So, yeah, there's a lot to cover here. And, I, you know, this, this story has taken some interesting turns over the course of the week. Uh, on, on two points, though, in, in your reporting, what can you tell us about the extent to which or whether ultimatums were made by the Canadian government to, to the organizers of this event? Right. Well, the fact is that, you know, the Halifax uh, officials, and these are, you know, mostly people, it should be noted, who started working on Halifax back when it was run uh, by John McCain and Peter McKay. And, you know, they include mm -hmm. some former conservative uh, uh, lawmaker staffers. But, you know, there was always this sort of tension between them and the liberal government that they managed and that they managed to work together on this forum, uh, you know, since 2015. And it was always kind of a, 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 an uncomfortable kind of marriage, but they made it work. And that kind of proves the the whole point of the forum, which is that, you know, we actually have a bipartisan uh, interest in coming together on these issues, and we actually all agree in democracy and human rights and freedom. Uh, the problem was that, you know, it seems to everyone at the forum that China is the biggest threat to that, and then the Canadian government doesn't want to be part of that. Now, as for the actual ultimatum, it's true that Sajan denied it to, to Parliament, and it's true that the Halifax people are asserting it. So only one of them can be telling the truth, okay? Mm -hmm. And when I found out that the, this ultimatum was allegedly sent through Judy Thomas's November 9th phone call, uh, her office acknowledged the phone call but denied the ultimatum. Now, again, one of them has to be lying, okay? But 
if the Canadian government is it really believes that this never happened, they have to have some sort of theory as to why, at the last minute, the Halifax Forum didn't award anybody any award at their forum. They took the biggest award, they planned it for months, and then at the last minute, it disappeared. Why would that? Why would they do that? What motivation would yes. they have? You know, this is a horrible right. thing for them. They love working with the, even the Liberal government. They really were trying to do, be good partners, and I think the. To be fair to Sajan, he was trying to be a good partner too, but they they just you know couldn't get along on this issue, and it seems like the Canadian government pushed the issue, and uh, you know Halifax pushed back. Right, yeah, and just to clarify something I had said, so yes, the previous event was this past November, the, the next one is set for later this month, so as you mentioned, uh, there was a plan to award the, the John McCain Award back in November that was pulled at the last minute. Uh, again, ostensibly it would seem because of these, these ultimatums. So in the terms of the... The night before, exactly. So something caused that decision. And in short right, of an ultimatum from the government, no what else exactly? What else could it possibly be? I, I can't think of anything. And they're still going to give them the award. They're still going to give Saad the award. They just wanted to wait until the forum was over so they, they would get the money that they were <laughs> promised and Sajan wouldn't pull out. You know, that's how scared they were that, of this threat. You know, but they, weren't, they didn't agree not to give the award. They just agreed not to give it right then. So eventually they was going to come out. Eventually people were around Washington were talking to each other saying, hey, what happened to the McCain Award? Seems odd. It didn't exist. You know, shouldn't there have been one? So eventually this is all going to come out, which also shows you that how the Canadian government misplayed the politics, because once it did come out, they got slammed by their opposition and rightfully so. And, you know, this exactly goes back to the point that you made so well in your intro, which is that, you know, you can't reward hostage taking. Uh, by constraining your behavior and all sorts of other issues because you just incentivize the hostage-taking. And you give them, a, 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 the Chinese government, an incentive to never release the two mics because why would they release them when we're shutting up about Taiwan and the Uyghurs and everything else? So the only way that to really deal with China is to you know, be tough on the stuff you need to be tough with and work with them on the stuff that you need to work with them on. And uh, you know, that means standing up for the things that you have to stand up for, including democracy, human rights, and freedom. Well, how is this perceived in Washington? I mean, obviously, you know, in Washington, they understand how, how China reacts to certain things and how they can overreact, perhaps, to, to certain matters. And obviously, some topics are more sensitive than others. And that's all well known by everybody in Washington. But, but how, how has this all been perceived? Well, the Biden administration often says that we have to confront, compete, and, and uh, cooperate with China all at the same time. We have to walk into gum. That's the official policy, okay? And that's what they're trying to do. That's not easy. Uh, but, you know, if for, if, for example, there are some things we just can't ignore, such as a genocide. Genocide, if you want to put a list of things we, we can sort of work with them on and the things that we have to stand up for, you would put genocide at the top of that list, right? So the Biden administration, they said, okay, well, we have to be honest, it's a genocide. And, by the way, if you send us the cotton from the slave labor, we're not going to take it. And if you send us the hair that you shave off the Uyghur women heads, we're not going to put it on our heads. And we just can't do that. So, you know, it's going to be a complex relationship. But in Washington, we're struggling to figure that out. And we're having a lot of trouble having that discussion the same way that Canada is. And frankly, the Trump administration mistreated Canada in this issue because it didn't really look out for the interests of the two mics and really uh, cooperate well with the Trudeau government because it was so dysfunctional. And that's what my is about it's about how we're coming out of this four years of dysfunction in washington we're trying to figure it out but meanwhile the world is still spinning and the you know two mics are still in prison and the uyghurs are still in camps so so the clock is ticking 
Yeah, it, it is. So, you know, when when we assume then uh, at some point soon here, the, the John McCain Award is going to be presented to Taiwan's president, um, that, that maybe that was inevitable. So when, when one looks back at how the Canadian government handled this, it's kind of like, you know, the government gets the worst of both worlds, that whatever angry reaction is coming from China, that that's going to be there. Now there's just the embarrassment of, you know, this this whole mishandling of this whole situation. I mean, I'm not sure what right. they, they really thought might come of this, but it's just kind of getting the, the worst of all of it, aren't they? Well, because they made the worst decisions at every stage, you know. First, they made the, the bad decision, allegedly, to, to, to try to silence the, the Halifax Forum and try to censor them on behalf of the Chinese government. That was not the right thing to do morally. Then they made the bad decision uh, of denying it, and now they're in a position where they're like, you know, how do you, how do you come back from that? So they, and getting attacked by their, so they made the wrong decision politically. And I'm saying they also made the wrong decision just strategically because really what I think is in Canada's best interest, I'm not a Canadian, so, you know, it's just a piece of free advice. It's worth what you paid for it. But the best thing would be to work with the Biden administration and let's be yeah. a little bit, you know, more coordinated and a little bit more assertive about standing up for these things together so that the Chinese can't bully us, okay, and can't tell us that you can't have the Taiwanese president at your conference or we're going to, you know, keep your hostages longer because that's a crazy thing to say and it's a it's a bullying thing it's a blackmail thing and once we accede to it we'll be dealing with that for the rest of our lives it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and so we let's not go down that road yeah i, I agree i mean i it, i i'm sympathetic at one level for a country like canada to go it alone uh it's, sure. it's a little more daunting and and you know being on, on the same page as the U.S. does give us some cover, but it still requires us to take a stand at some point. It just doesn't really seem to be a lot of willingness to do that right now. You know, I want to give full credit to the liberal government. They may think they're doing the right thing. They, I'm sure they, in their calculation, they believe that, you know, we don't want to have a, a dust-up in the middle of these negotiations. Nobody wants to get the two mics killed, you know what I mean? I'm sure the Halifax people don't want to, them to suffer one more day either. So I, I'm not saying we can't be sympathetic to the idea that they're involved in a sensitive diplomatic relations. I'm just saying that like there are lines that we have to draw. And one of those lines is don't tell me not to criticize the Chinese Communist Party in public because that's a fundamental part of my, uh, my, of my freedom and my human rights. And then you're constraining my human rights for China, and it's not, it's not okay. And I totally agree with what you said. The United States has to do a lot more to help Canada on this issue because, you know, Canada is a middle power and the United States is supposed to be a superpower. So we're supposed to lead, okay? And if I think if we lead, then... Even a liberal government will find the courage to follow. And we haven't done that, and that's our failing, and I hope that will improve. Well, the book is out now. It's called Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, Xi, and the Battle for the 21st Century. Uh, as well, you're writing on this whole situation at WashingtonPost.com. Josh, thanks so much for joining us here. Really appreciate your insight on all this. Anytime. All the best. That is Josh Rogan, uh, columnist at the Washington Post, covering uh, national security and foreign affairs matters. Also author of the new book, Chaos Under Heaven. Trump G and the uh, battle for the 21st century. So some interesting reporting here. So there was the plan at the last conference to give Taiwan's president this award that was pulled at the last minute following this, this phone call from Ottawa. It's easy enough to put two and two together. And numerous sources told Josh that, yes, that it was indeed an ultimatum, despite the government's denials. So the organizers of the Halifax International Security Forum are going to go ahead and present Taiwan's president with the John McCain Award, despite this ultimatum. 
and that the plan always was to present this award. And it really isn't and shouldn't be something that the Canadian government has a veto over. The Canadian government wants to distance itself from this. I suppose that's its prerogative. It's unfortunate that it would have to come to that. But to, to pull this kind of a stunt and try to bully the conference out of doing this, knowing that that was going to come to light eventually, is just a, a really stupid way, i got to admit, a really stupid way of responding. And it, it does not reflect well on the government at all. Ridge with you here. I mean, clearly we're at a pivotal moment in terms of this pandemic and, and ensuring that everything we're doing now uh, to deal with the virus, this is the last go around here. I, look, we don't know what, what this uh, virus has in store for us. There's reason for optimism, obviously, uh, with the vaccines that, that we have and that are coming. Uh, but uh, we got some challenges ahead. Uh, looking at the situation, uh, the uh, Canadian Chamber of Commerce uh, has some thoughts on, on how we can make this our last lockdown and, and why there's an urgent need for changing our approach here. And part of this conversation, I think, has to involve, you know, what does returning to the workplace look like? And how do workers feel, how do employers feel about getting back to normal in terms of, uh, you know, people being vaccinated, workforce uh, vaccination levels, and, and still maybe the need for other safety measures, PPE, etc. So joining us uh, to talk about uh, all of this, which uh, you can read more, by the way, at chamber.ca. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Perrin Beatty, who is President and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Mr. Beatty, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Ron. Glad to be with you. So like I say, I mean, it's it's an interesting moment we're at right now. I mean, there's there's reason for concern, I think, in, in the short term. Longer term, there's still some reason for optimism, though. I mean, what, what's your sense of where we're at? Exactly. We are deep into the third wave at this point. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, looking at the figures from Ontario today, we're, we're again hitting a pandemic high in terms of infections. And we're seeing across the country that we're not controlling the, the third wave the way, the way that we need to. Mm-hmm. But the good news is that vaccines are here. And it is even if the tunnel is still long and dark in front of us, we know that it is going to come to an end and we will be emerging. What we need to do is to ask ourselves, how can we speed the day in which we can safely give Canadians their lives back again and allow our economy to reopen? And how can we ensure in the meantime that, that we keep Canadians safe until everybody's been vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping for the best and just sort of sitting back and, and waiting for things to get better. I mean, that that's not much of a strategy. And I realize, you know, you know, governments are, are, are taking steps, and, and this is not an easy task, but in terms of maybe rethinking or changing the strategy, what, what's missing right now? What do we need to focus on, do you think? Well, I think the, the key thing in the short term is, A, we've got to step up the pace of vaccination. That's absolutely critical. Now, we've seen in countries where they're more successful than we are in terms of vaccinating their population that infection rates are coming way down. Britain is a very good example of that, which had raging rates of infection previously. Uh, but they've done a much, much better job than virtually any other country in terms of in terms of getting people vaccinated. And as a result, they are reopening their economy and their society. Um, we need as well to, to take measures in the interim, such as rolling out rapid testing, rapid screening. 
Um, one of the things Britain is doing as part of the reopening strategy is to making is to make rapid testing kits available even to individuals and individual homes, free of charge. In addition to uh, rolling them out in the workplace and businesses and, and other organizations, we have literally millions of test kits sitting in warehouses that are paid for by the federal government that we can't get out at this point. And one of the reasons why they why they can't be is provincial regulations across the country that require that medically trained personnel be the ones to administer the tests. These tests are, are so simple that in Britain, the government is sending the tests out to individuals and saying, test yourselves. Yeah. There's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't be pushing out literally uh, millions of these tests, test kits to be used now to help us do a much better job of screening where there's a potential threat, to identify it early, and to be able to, to take action. We need to uh, do other things as well. Uh, obviously, businesses need to help to educate their employees and their customers about the importance of getting vaccinated. Uh, we need to ensure that we build confidence among our workforces that it's safe to go back into uh, in, into the place of work. Uh, we surveyed, along with Abacus Data, our partner, uh, we surveyed uh, employees across Canada, asked them uh, what would be the preconditions that, that would have to exist before you felt comfortable going back to work. And right. 79% indicated that vaccination would be a critical factor. Now, 77% said that everyone in the workforce, uh, in their workplace, uh, should wear masks. 69% identified rapid screening. Um, if Even if you lifted all of the restrictions today, unless people thought it was safe to go back in, they'd be very reluctant to do so. So there are all sorts of measures that we could be taking right now to help to make a difference here. You know, it's interesting. Alberta's um, going to be partnering with uh, with Cargill to to have on-site uh, vaccination for workers at their meatpacking plant in southern Alberta. And I do wonder going forward is, you know, and, and I think businesses certainly have a role to play, not just in, you know, building up vaccine confidence, but maybe helping this process along. Do, do you see a, maybe a more hands-on role that, that businesses can play here? Absolutely. Well, we're seeing it now already. For example, the, pharmac the pharmacies across the country, which are helping to vaccinate. But there are many businesses across the country who have offered to set up vaccination clinics. Uh, we've also had instances where businesses, for example, with the Pfizer vaccine, which had to be uh, kept initially in, in uh, freezers that were, were, were uh you know, extraordinary freezers. Uh, there was an ice cream company in, in a small community in Ontario that went and bought one of these super freezers to enable this to be done. Um, so there are a lot of things that business can and should be doing to help to ensure the safety of their employees and of the public, and also to build public confidence that we can manage this disease successfully and we can safely make it out of the tunnel. The thing, Rob, that, that is so critical is that um, the lockdowns that we're experiencing may be necessary as a, as a so-called circuit breaker, but they're a confession that everything else has failed. They're not a solution in themselves. What they do is they give us time to put other measures in place. And what's critical for us is to get those measures in place now, the, the rapid screening, the PPEs, the physical distancing, the uh, vaccinations. As you say, I mean, it's so crucial that we get it right, because there's a real opportunity here that if we do it right, that, that this could be, as, as this uh, report suggests, the, the last 
lockdown, right? And that's yeah, what we need to strive. And that's why all of us have to work work together. It's not just government's job; it's it's business's job as well, and that of, of you know society as a whole and individuals. Each of us, as an individual, has a responsibility to our neighbors, to our family, to our friends, to do what we can to keep them safe as well. Absolutely. Much more as mentioned, chamber.ca. Baron Beatty, thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Much appreciated. Thanks, Rob. It's a critical issue. Absolutely. All the best. Perrin Beatty, President, CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. So their thoughts on uh, maybe what we can do now uh, to bolster these efforts and make sure that we have some meaningful and lasting success. It, it is interesting, too, when you look at the uh, Abacus data polling that was done in conjunction this re- with this report. Uh, 79% of Canadians indicate that vaccination will be a critical factor for making them comfortable going back into the workplace under more normal circumstances. And obviously, it's a priority for employers as well. You know, we talked a bit about uh, this yesterday. One of the big uh, hotel companies in Las Vegas actually going so far as to provide cash bonuses uh, to employees if the workforce vaccination level can meet certain targets, striving to get to uh, 80%. Again, I, I don't know if companies in, in Canada are prepared to go that far, and obviously a lot of that's going to depend on, on vaccine availability. That, yeah, if you can go tomorrow, anyone, anywhere in the country, and get an appointment, then perhaps, you know, there might be some encouragement. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.